So maybe here's a quick question about maybe what is still maybe unsolvable dilemma, for example, for SLAM and robotics or marine robotics, because, yeah, I think this also still yeah, a very interesting topic as well. So what could be still unsolvable dilemma or still challenging for you as well? Sure. I feel that um, there's one thing that we make a lot of assumptions and, and I'll go back to Rodney Brooks again. Uh, we question the assumptions and, you know, negate the assumptions and see how our methods fail. So, for example, implicitly still, we assume uh, for a lot of times that the environment is static and that the environment doesn't change. So can we make techniques that are um, truly robust to the environment changing? And in terms of a dilemma, I think there's almost a form of like Heisenberg uncertainty principle about dynamic environments. That's a kind of question, am I lost or has the world changed? So imagine a robot that goes back to where it thinks it started. Everything's changed. And it's like, am I lost or did the world change? And then how could it actively decide? Well, why don't I go back in time and say, well, you know, what did I expect to find? For example, when we looked at experiments in dynamic environments, for example, trying to use place recognition based on objects in the world, um, it's actually kind of tricky. Like what, what parts of the environment can you assume that don't move very often, like furniture? What parts move a lot, like coffee cups? And how do you, um, could you build up a kind of semantic spatial awareness of understanding the world in terms of objects and, and, and still knowing about places, you know? Yeah, that's also a good point, yeah. So maybe we can go for the audience question because we have, we have a lot of questions, especially from Reddit like, uh, machine learning community. So the first question is uh, from uh, Rani, he is from University of California, and he said that what are the best, or what, sorry, what are the least developed research topics or overlooked research that you think is important for the success of robotics? Great, um, let's see. Well, I think uh, in, my, in my own kind of research group's trajectory, I'm gonna go back to this question of robustness and certifiable, can we really trust the answer? I'm gonna to go to the question of uh, semantic representation. How do you represent the world in terms of objects and places and in kind of more human level terms while still coupling to the kind of metrical ability to you know, locate accurately and so forth. Um, I think in the underwater domain, which I think a lot about and hope to do more work in in the f near future, um, uh, the issue of how you communicate is very hard. You know, we have very limited communication links, acoustic links and optical links. And it raises the question of how, um, how do you have resource constrained robots, robots that may have limited power or, or limited kind of sensing ranges, sensing capabilities and limited communications to a human operator. So I think that um, th those, that's a whole sort of portfolio of questions that we're trying to think about. Um, but more generally, uh, you know, I, I have a, um, I'm very fortunate that in addition to my MIT career, I went on sabbatical and remain a technical advisor at Toyota Research Institute, where um, we're working on self-driving cars and, and active safety technology for cars. And one thing that that experience has taught me in terms of open research questions is that the interacting, interaction with the human is absolutely critical. So for autonomous driving or highly automated driving, um, what is the, how do you predict the actions of agents in the world and understand the intent of other drivers and pedestrians and road users like bicyclists and the own driver? So I think that there's a huge space of opportunity where robots meet humans, um, specifically with respect to prediction anticipating what will 
come next and coupling that to estimating risk and then connecting that to motion planning and, and so on. So, so it's actually, despite the tremendous growth in the field and so many papers and, you know, uh, there's still a lot of really big challenges. Yeah. Thank you for this answer. Yeah. And we have another question also. Um, yeah, maybe we can get this question. For publishing researchers, uh, research, uh, not in top-ranked labs, what's your advice in getting attention to your work in such a competitive and top-heavy field? Or is it just another way of asking, how can I write compelling papers? Sure. Um, well, I would say, um, first of all, you know, I, I very much believe in the, the democratization of, of research that um, you don't have to be at MIT, Stanford, or Berkeley to be publishing top papers. And I'm very fortunate that I have dear colleagues who've truly taught me things and, and moved the needle uh, on their fields in universities all over the globe, you know, and I, I could, you know, places in Spain and Ireland and Germany and Australia and uh, places that are not, uh, you know, um, you know what, what you would say is, you know, I think we can all participate and we can all contribute. I think that, and also um, submitting to conferences that are double blind so that the authors aren't named and that, you know, my, my hope is that folks would f feel that um, everyone is welcome. Good ideas are always welcome. Um, I think there are some um, researchers have posted talks about how to write a good paper or make an impact. For example, my colleague Bill Freeman at MIT, he's written, um, you can find it with Google, uh, 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 a talk about what makes a good CVPR paper. And, uh, and he, uh, one of my colleagues just referred me to that yesterday, you know, because um, the CVPR review came out and they're very challenging. And I think that... Um, some of the, um, if, if you, I, I think that several things. So in some ways, uh, there is a lot of stochastic, there's a stochastic nature to research. Do you, you know, how does an idea resonate with the reviewers? You know, and, um, but I think that if you can um, um, try to, uh, it, it's hard, but, but impact comes from the papers that really, um, have that kind of novelty aspect, which is hard to sort of distinguish or capture. Um, and I think that um, we, we uh, let's see, I would say that um, if uh, um, knowing the literature is just so important and it's, and with Google Scholar, there's easy to get many things, but then also so much new things appearing. So I think one of the best rules I would say for writing good papers is to spend a lot of your time reading good papers. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. And we also have a question um, from Herbert. Uh, he's a student at uh, Worcester University of Technology. What's your opinion, um, the best tools or skills to learn or to begin fastly, uh, just fastly changing technology branch? What kind of tools or skills? Sure, I think one of the things that's challenging about being in a robotics lab today as a graduate student is, um, it's so much work to, it's so challenging to get everything to work. The whole like app get install PhD, you know, like how you figure out how ROS or something like LCM works or Moose, how you, um, how you get device drivers for cameras working, how you install GTSM, how you write GPU code. Um, I think uh, what I, one of the things I tell my students because I'm, you know, things like faculty search committee meetings and teaching and various sorts of demands is that, 
you're not actually going to learn that much from me. You're going to learn from your fellow students, which is something that's actually very hard with COVID, that the students aren't in the lab able to physically interact. But that um, if you, one of the true benefits of a place like MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, et cetera, Georgia Tech, where you, UPenn, where you have Michigan, where you have a community of people, you can, um, by being present in the lab and engaged, you can pick up a lot of those skills of, of other, um, uh, the, the, how to get things done as a roboticist. And you have to combine that with understanding the algorithms, you know, and work, you know, and, um, but it's, uh, and, and performing careful experiments. So, so I guess it's, um, it's, uh, you will learn gradually and you'll learn from everyone you meet. Think of every person you meet in your lab and in colleagues' labs as a potential co-author, a potential collaborator. Um, you know, I think actually, um, one of the most wonderful things I feel about my career is uh, I, feel, I feel very fortunate that the people I've worked with are so amazing and taught me so much um, that, I've, I've, uh, that, that it's really, uh, I have a saying, success is infinitely divisible. You know, if you do something that's truly successful and you have two co-authors versus one co-author versus seven co-authors, I don't care how many co-authors are on the paper if it's a sufficiently good paper. So you're going to make yourself better by working with other people and what you give in helping them will come back multiplied from the help other people will give you. And here's also a question from uh, Sanskar. Uh, he's asking you, I'm looking to get into postgraduate computer science program in MIT th next year. How to get into research and deep learning? I, I am self-taught and I have no idea how to start or go toward writing my paper. Sure. Well, first of all, the thing I tell everyone is apply to many schools. Um, sadly, we get hundreds of applications for these programs. And so if you, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I would, I would apply to very many schools. There are some fantastic schools. It doesn't have to be MIT, Stanford, Berkeley. Um, learning skills, I think there's, we're fortunate that there's some wonderful courses online. Um, MIT has open courseware historically, and then recently as part of edX, there's obviously Coursera and Udacity. And I think that um, if, you, uh, if you look, and feel free to email me, jleonard at mit.edu, I try to answer all my email, I try to point you towards things in a specific area, but I think that in particular for deep learning, um, like uh, at MIT, Lex Friedman, uh, who's, who uh, had, um, has quite a, a notable podcast, he previously taught a deep learning class at MIT with some resources. And if, you, um, if you're persistent and you dig online, you should be able to find some video lectures and things. But ultimately, you have to write your own code and do something. And, uh, you know, I just, just be persistent and, 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 uh, and just try to learn, be always learning. Now we have also a question about, uh, yeah. What are the challenges that are unique to SLAM for marine environment? And what are the some of interesting things that you have been doing to address this issue? Well, um, so one thing that's, uh, we don't have, it's hard to see underwater. And so dealing, and sensors such as sonars can be very challenging to interpret. And good sonars can be expensive. So you have your kind of size, weight, and power constraints that are very much multiplied. Um, and you have environmental factors, you know, the waves, the currents, um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I've done less marine robotics than I would have liked in the last kind of roughly eight to 10 years due to being associate department head and various sort of endeavors. But um, I have a, a crop of new students in the MIT Woods Hole Joint Program, which is a small but really, if, uh, really quality program. And 
we're looking at um, cooperative navigation in multiple vehicles, and we're trying to do semantic SLAM, like based more on object, combining machine learning and object recognition with, with SLAM for, for underwater applications. And we're also trying to think about how uh, humans and robots might work together in a marine environment. Um, from a more algorithmic perspective, um, I go back to David Rosen, my recent postdoc, who this certifiable approach to SLAM, uh, I think that if we can, um, that can really benefit us underwater because sometimes for a terrestrial application, for example, for self-driving cars, um, they, they, many approaches, uh, such as Google's, they, they've said publicly, uh, now Waymo, but they, they would make a very precise map by driving the car around the environment in advance. And so you're assuming that the world is not going to change too much. And then when you make the map that then the car is then going to use to accurately, accurately localize itself, you can, um, it's possible for a human to verify the map and say, you know what, this, the algorithm messed up here or this changed. Uh, maybe there were leaves on the ground blocking the lines, something. Underwater, we don't have a human that can go in and intervene. So that's why resource constraints and robustness certifiability are extremely important for underwater because we don't, it's not easy to have a human that sort of says everything's okay.